Good. I hear some horns. No horns in the parking lot? Oh boy, there, okay. Very good. If you're visiting, we are very glad to have you. And uh, whether you're in the building or outside the building or however you can approach what we're doing here in worship to the Lord, you are most welcome. So uh, next week, we're going to start retaking pictures to update our picture board uh, out there up front. It's just a small way to recognize some of the transitions that we've been through and to start to kind of rebuild a way for us to say, I'm still here, I'm still in, I'm still here for you, Lord, in, in this church of yours. Uh, I turned our old pictures into a prayer ring for uh, just a tool to pray for current and former members by name, but I still have those photos, and I just wanted to say, especially to our older members, if the picture that you have is still up to date and you would rather uh, just use that one and it's a hardship for you to get those retaken, uh, no problem, just let me know. Uh, it's no problem for me at all, and we'll get those back up there. Uh, let me know or put a note in my box out by my door. Don't bother Denise with that, please. All right, so last week we finished up this series, The Call of the King, uh, where I invited us to ask hard questions about how seriously we're taking Jesus' call in our lives. And we found that, you know, sometimes we play games with that and we hedge our bets and we don't give our full hearts to the Lord. And yet the goodness of this call that he gives us and the goodness of his person uh, is such a wonderful and beautiful thing. And so this series in the kingdom of God kind of goes hand in glove with that because content-wise, the thing that Jesus Christ, our Savior, talked about the most while he was here on earth, stories and instruction and teaching on the kingdom of God. So in this new series, we're going to explore the kingdom of God as an idea, as something that we long for, as a reality that's available for us to experience, at least in some sense, the first fruits of us, first fruits of this kingdom are available to us even now. But interestingly, the phrase uh, kingdom of God is found primarily in the Gospels. In fact, Matthew says kingdom of heaven usually is his designation. And it's only used sporadically in other places. But this idea of the kingdom, it's throughout the entire Bible. The vocabulary of the kingdom, this language of lordship and kingship and reign and dominion, this language is in our Bible, Genesis to Revelation. So the story of the kingdom is a story that revolves around a special called-out people who live under the rule of God, and under his rule they discover things like justice, healing, redemption, and salvation. And I think more than anything else, the kingdom of God is the meta-narrative the meta that unites all of the scriptures together. You wonder sometimes, what does Leviticus have to do with Mark? Or, and sometimes that seems like a long ways away from each other. But if there is a strand that I see that really can tie the entire, all of these narratives of the Bible together, it is this idea of the reign of God and his kingdom. 
So on a practical level, for even for us today as Christians, uh, say for any human being, the kingdom of God is a life question that we are all accountable to on a personal level. And we have to deal with it in some way. So that question comes to us like this. Whose kingdom are you going to live in? You can't choose not to live in a kingdom. A lot of people try that, but that's a kingdom too. Who is going to be the Lord of your life? Now we can choose whatever Lord, but there's only one. There's only one who's able to save us from ourselves and from others or whatever. Whose kingdom are you going to live in? Who is going to be the Lord of your life? Through his own person, Jesus opens for us a whole new world of possibility. In his own person, Jesus invites us into a whole new realm, a new reign that we access by faith in him. The Hebrew of, uh, the writer of the Hebrew of writers, <laughs> the writer of Hebrews describes this as a better country, a heavenly one, a promised land that the ancient words of Exodus describe as flowing with milk and honey. They're looking for a place, a home, a place where we truly belong. And this land that Jesus describes, it follows closely the geography and the contours of the human heart. And I would say that this longing for the ideal kingdom, the place where things are perfect, where God reigns completely, I would say that's nothing short of the deepest longing of our souls. We were made for this kingdom. And it's, it shows up in different ways. A sense that things aren't quite right. Have you noticed how polarized our politics are? It doesn't seem to be fixing things sometimes. Do you ever hope for more than what that offers? Nothing is quite as good as it should have been, as we imagined it would be when we had this level of income, when we got this thing, when we got these relationships that have fallen apart, the loss of loved ones. So this is all something that humanity deals with. And I, say, well, I would say this longing for kingdom is so deeply ingrained in our souls, it's not just something for church people. It's something we all have to grapple with and come to terms with. The desire for a better kingdom is hardwired into the human soul. And this longing and this desire of our hearts, it finds expression in our culture and in our art. Even our secular culture kind of comes back to this. So, for example... As far as I know, Guns N' Roses, it's not, they are not what most people would call a religious band. And I don't think, and I, I can't judge, but I don't know that they had the things of God in mind when they wrote their music, 
or when they perform their concerts. And I don't think they had the things of God in mind with the thing, how they spent their time after their concerts. And yet when they sing songs like this, take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and the girls are pure. You know what I mean? Oh, won't you please take me home? All right. There's something, okay, most, some of us are just like, okay, move on, please. This is uncomfortable, whatever. But I'm just saying, there's something about that that resonates in the human soul. Or a little bit older version of this. So this is when I was a kid, maybe when my grandparents were a kid. The Big Rock Candy Mountain. So that is, this is a song from 1928. And this, this is an art piece that was made, it's kind of trippy, in 1948. Uh, and it's kind of this hobo's description of the ideal utopia, the ideal world. And so he says, I'm heading for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the Big Rock Candy Mountains. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. That's not a religious song in any way. And yet it is a view of this utopian dream, this reality, that I would say, you know, it says something about our human soul, that we are a people in search of a better country, a fairer land, a city that's better than anything we've known or experienced. And so I don't think it is an accident that uh, one of the most uh, famous books in all of history, the best-selling books in all of history, is one that is written in 1678 by Englishman John Bunyan in a Christian allegory called the Pilgrim's Progress. And it is a story of this search, a quest to reach the celestial city. So that is this, this longing. And so it's, he sets out on this pilgrimage, pilgrimage looking for a better land. He comes across all kinds of characters along the way, faces all these kinds of dangers we just naturally kind of look at our lives that way. That we somehow feel that we are on a journey. Even the most grounded of us, who've never moved anywhere in our lives, we have this sense and this longing of something more, of a desire of something more. Because love is frustrated where we are now. There's not justice for everyone where we are now. Loneliness, the tears that we cry, things are not fully what they're supposed to be. So I would argue that the longing for this ideal kingdom is something that's ingrained very deeply in the human psyche and beyond that into the human soul itself. It is a part of our experience And it is something that goes beyond uh, culture, and it's not limited to just our time, our day and age. Uh, 
It has been throughout human history, across cultural lines. And so I would argue that when we pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we speak in some way to a reality that we were created for. At the depths of our being, we were created for something more than we know and experience in, the, in its fullness, at least, here in this, in this world. So this idea of the kingdom as the meta-narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to explore this more in upcoming weeks. So we have this patriarch of the faith, a man named Abraham, who left his home country. And the Hebrew writer says, based on Genesis 12, to look for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's how our Bible begins. And our Bible ends with some words from John in his revelation, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. This longing for a better place, a meta-narrative that ties our scripture together. For some people, the kingdom of God is just, it's an idea. And there are some voices in our culture, in, in our times, in our times past, that have said this utopian longing, it's a bad idea. Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, uh, it's not really helpful. And so there are, there are people who have said for years that all of our eschatological hopes, our desire for the reign of God, God's kingdom coming. It's a utopian pipe dream, Christians. Wake up. And so you get all of these people, all of these voices who say things like this. Religion is a crutch, and only the crippled need crutches. Or religion is the opium of the people for the weak or the simple or the broken that helps them out. Or here's one from, this is an interesting one to me, uh, Nietzsche. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And there has never been a greater deed. And whosoever shall be born after us for the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history, higher history than all history hitherto. The idea being, if we just get rid of religion, then we can have our utopian dream. So even those who are most against what we do, they understand and they speak to a higher history. Very interesting to me. So there's a lot of academic institutions out there that purport this kind of stuff on young, impressionable minds. But it seems to me the idea that humanity is capable of creating heaven on earth ourselves I would say that this is the biggest pipe dream of all. And let me just say a word about academic humor, hubris. Uh, it isn't intellect that keeps people from Jesus Christ. It's pride of intellect. It's a world that I've got all the answers and there's not room for mystery anymore. I like the way my uh, friend Dallas Willard says it. It is, after all, not intellect that is a threat to spirituality, but pride of intellect, a reliance on, a trust in, a worship of intellect. You're going to live in some kingdom. 
you're going to live under some kind of king. And we turn all kinds of things into kings and kingdoms. The most tenacious one that tries to climb on the throne of your heart is your own self. Well, I think there's enough empirical evidence out there across time and across cultures that there is a sense of belonging, for, uh, a sense of longing universally for a better land where things that have been broken, things that were never achieved, they can be found. Uh, so for a lot of us, this idea of the kingdom of God, it's more than an idea. It is, it is in fact, a dream that we hold. And for some of us, that dream becomes our hope. That hope becomes the compass that orients our lives. And as we live in that reality, some of us begin to experience that other world of the kingdom of God breaking in to our very real day-to-day lives with power and resources that are beyond us. And it's nothing short of the miracle of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so no matter how dark this world gets, no matter how dark it's going to get, there are always going to be a peculiar people, I would say, who find themselves strangely drawn to the luminous Galilean and his life and his words who in his very person shows us how to enter into this kingdom of God, this reign of God. Well, the great tragedy of human history, of course, is that we give our hearts, our sweat, our tears, our blood, our very lives to kingdoms that in the end, they're not worthy of us. There's so many kingdoms out there that are just not worthy of our allegiance. And in our world of fierce competition, of endless distraction, of all kinds of noise, the kingdom of God comes to us so quietly and with such humility that most people in this world just miss it completely. People run after kingdoms that they make, kingdoms of glitter and glamour, who make big noise. These kingdoms promise to give us the world. All of our advertising is kind of like that. If you just get this, your life will be changed forever. Uh, I was in a pastry, ate a pastry in South Africa one time, and the guy, I asked the guy, is this good? And he said, it'll change your life, and, it'll ne- and you'll never be the same again. That was a good pastry. But that is a whole other level. These kingdoms of this world, they enamor us, they distract us, and we even know on some level that these kingdoms of this world, they lie to us, they cheat us, uh, and really we don't fuss too much because we don't expect too much from them. We just know, and so we just are happy for a time being led by the nose wherever this kingdom wants to, until we move on to the next thing the next glittery, sparky, sparkly thing that will captivate us. And even those, I would argue, of us who have known this first fruits of the kingdom, who are beginning to taste this reality that God offers to us even now, I would say that even no matter how far we go while we're still in this life, 
we have to be vigilant, even for those of us who have chosen Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we want to enthrone him as the number one of our lives and our heart. If we are not vigilant, we find our hearts and our allegiance drawn to kingdoms that are not worthy of us. St. Augustine, in his work, The City of God, says it this way, As to those feebler spirits who, though they cannot be said to prefer earthly possessions to Christ, do yet cleave to them with a somewhat immoderate attachment, and they have discovered by the pain of losing these things how much they were sinning in loving them, for their grief is of their own making." It's so easy to be captivated by the things that scream for our attention. But I I don't know if you've noticed this about your God. He doesn't get involved in screaming contests. At least that's not been my experience. See, the kingdom of God comes to us in humility, and it requires of us a response of humility as well. You have to be humble to find it. You have to be humble to accept it. You have to be humble to live in it and in its power. In fact, Jesus says it in these words, to enter into this kingdom, you have to become like a little child. A little child. That's who inherits this kingdom. What does that mean? And you know, the one who makes this all work, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the one who says, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the gate, the one who all human history hinges on, he was humble. In fact, this glorious messianic king who comes, who had been prophesied throughout ages for hundreds of years, he comes with so much humility that people just don't recognize him. Kings, strictly speaking, are not supposed to be born in places like mangers. So the prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, they say things like this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And he's the kind of king that is so lowly that he comes into town, not in the Tesla with the motorcade or whatever. He comes on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's our king of humility. And the people this humble king goes to, the ones he spends time with, the ones he pronounces blessing over, that also surprises people. He goes to the down and outs as much as he goes to the in and ups. You know, he goes to the very people who were presumed by their life and their personality and their circumstances, whatever. These were the ones who were presumed to be shut out of the kingdom of God, who have no claim in God's kingdom. And Jesus makes a V-line towards people like that, and he speaks beatitude over them. 
He speaks blessing over them. The forgotten people in society, like the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are mourning, blessed are those who mourn. Those people who are overlooked because they are so gentle and meek, blessed are the meek. And it was so confusing to people that even after spending years with Jesus, and even after Jesus had died and been resurrected from the dead, they're still asking him questions like this. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It would take the coming, it will take the coming of the Holy Spirit to fully awaken these disciples' eyes so that they're able to step into and experience the full power of what this kingdom means and what this kingdom brings. So, BP, you can come up. Our invitation for us is to join me on this journey while we explore this kingdom. Uh, of course, if you have a need for the prayers of this church or to put on the Lord in baptism, uh, we can make that happen. You can come up and see me up here up front after uh, I wrap up and then we sing an invitation song. But uh, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be exploring this kingdom of God. And uh, as I said, this doesn't just begin in the Gospels. And so I don't do a ton of Old Testament preaching, but next week, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be doing some Old Testament preaching as we look at the history and the development and the understanding of this kingdom that uh, uh, Jesus takes and claims and helps us understand in a unique way, uh, announcing its availability to us. Just come, live in the life of the kingdom of God, even here and now, that he opens to us in a unique way in his own life and his own person. So I don't know where you've been in your life, no matter where you are. You were created for life in the kingdom of God. You are meant for it. And as hard or as impossible or as distant as the kingdom of God might seem, as Jesus described it, no, how, no matter how much you desire this kingdom and to enter into it, we don't have to be afraid because our desire for the kingdom of God, it's nothing in comparison with our Heavenly Father's desire to give it to us and to have us enter into it and to make it known to us through His Holy Spirit living in us, giving us guidance and power and teaching for our lives. So fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's stand and sing.